Hi, I'm your host, Anthony Giorgio, and you're listening to another episode of QT, Queer Teen Podcast, encouraging the next generation of queer youth from across the world to stand up for what's right. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Queer Teen Podcast. I'm super excited for my next guest. Um, I met this person in India um, three years ago now, uh, maybe more than three years ago. I'm going to have them introduce themselves and we'll take it from there. Go ahead. Hi, thanks Anthony. Um, I'm so happy to be here on here with you. And uh, my name is Jerry, Jerry Johnson, and I am an openly gay a man who's been living in India for um, pretty much all of his adult life now. And I'm also a communication professional and I have co-authored a book called I Am Divine, So Are You. And I am um, quite uh, um, active in the space of LGBT activism and human rights. And I uh, speak in various forums on, forums on these topics, yeah. It's so funny when you were told me you're like, I'm not a professional activist and I've never heard anyone consider themselves a professional activist over here, um, which is so funny because I do a lot of activism, but I never, um, I never would consider myself, I just do it because it has to be done and I don't think twice about it. I just do it because the work needs to be done. There are a lot right. of voices that need to be heard. Um, and so, yeah, so I uh, was, uh, when I was introduced to you, I was introduced to the book you just mentioned, I Am Divine, So Are You, um, which you co-authored. Uh, can you say your friend's name for me so I don't mess it up? Sure, yes, it's uh, Devdath Patnayak. And he's just, he's also uh, more than just a friend. He's also a very famous uh, author, globally right. renowned and also well-known in India as India's first and foremost mythologist. And can you just talk about the book a little bit? Because this, this uh, season's topics are about, I call it queer religion and all the different types of um, religion, spirituality, faith, no faith, God, and whomever you don't believe in or believe in. That's what we've been talking about with all my guests. And um, talk about that a little bit and what your connection is to that, how you even got involved with doing something. By the way, sure, the, book yeah. is, the book is really, really good. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yes. So yes, I'll talk about how we came about to uh, getting to together to work on that book. So, um, so the Church of Sweden, um, um, they used to um, organize a you know a world festival or festival of theology, and um, so there was this one time in 2015 when they organized the global festival of theology, and they had all of these many religious uh, representatives participating. But they did not have anyone from uh, the Indian subcontinent representing some of the Indian religions participating. And so that was a huge uh, gap uh, gap that they noticed. It was an absence um, that was very conspicuous because uh, the religion of more than uh, you know a billion people on the planet had no representative. And so they said that they, let's go and explore um, who are the representatives of this religion in India and who can write about it or talk about it in a very meaningful way. And in a very authentic and, and an honest way, um, without necessarily being, uh, you know, entirely flattering of their religion or their or, or their uh, topic, and at the same time not necessarily being antagonistic 
um, but to be also put uh, to to be also uh, discuss religion within the context of queer lives and 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 the in the issue of being queer, right? So then they approached. Uh, so so there was the Church of uh, Sweden. There was Reverend Father J P Heath. He then approached uh, several of his contacts and networks in India. And uh, as it turned out, everyone that they approached in India either did not want to deal with this topic, um, just generally because their own personal beliefs were against the idea that that their religion would accept uh, queer sexuality in any way, or they did not want to approach this topic or deal with this topic because of their own reputational hazards associated with it. So um, I know of, a, of the case there were many professors in Indian universities who were approached and who did not want to get involved because they were like, you know, it's not good for our reputation and we might get into legal troubles, we might get into uh, possible political troubles and thing, things of that nature. Um, also remember in India, um, you know, while we, while we say we have the right to free speech in our constitution, it's also a very sensitive topic to discuss religion in any way, which yes. if it's, con yes, if, if, if anyone considers uh, your speech uh, offensive to their sentiments and religion, then you could get into big trouble, legal or maybe more. Um, so, uh, so they were finding it very difficult for anyone to write about this topic. And that's how then they finally approached Devdutt, Devdutt Patnaik. And as I said earlier, Devdutt is a very well-known, renowned author, mythologist. Um, he writes about religion from a mythological perspective, uh, not as a, a theolog theologian, but as someone who studied, studies these as stories and myths and symbols and rituals. Um, so Devdath wanted to get involved in the project, but he knew that he did not have the bandwidth or the time to get, do it all himself. And then he also knew that he wanted someone with an outsider's point of view, um, not someone who is practicing the religion necessarily, but somebody who's observing religions as such. And then I just happened to be his friend as well. And he knows that I've had, I have a background in philosophy. I have studied philosophy in undergraduate school and I've done, and I do a lot of my own kind of uh, workshops on philosophy. So one of the things when I first came to India in 2006 from the US, one of the th first things I did was run a philosophy discussion club at the University of Mumbai. And so he knows me from all of those activities, right? So he thought that, um, Jerry, I think you would have the right kind of academic bent of mind, as well as a little bit of distance, given that, you know, you yourself are not necessarily a practicing uh, religious person. Um, and, um, but yet you'd be able to approach it with the right kind of, you know, distance and the, with the right kind of scholarship. So I thought that that was a very interesting proposition that he put before me. And then I was like more than happy. Um, because it was also then my introduction into learning about these religions in a very different way. Um, so I come from a minority community in India, you know, being, being Catholic and not just Catholic, but South Indian Christian, right? Which is, you know, another further minority among Christians. Um, so I grew up in a household that was entirely Catholic and not necessarily aware of the other Indian religions, but, you know, kind of just knowing them superficially. So I thought this was a great opportunity for me to really delve deep into these uh, topics and then also address the matter that is so close to me and my heart, which is being queer, which is not being you know, mainstream, not normative, not heterosexual in any way. So understanding all of these various facets of my life in India, you know, um, in, in a very academic and in a scholarly way, and then making it um, as openly uh, accessible in language and in ideas in the form of a very simple and easy to read book. And I thought that was a fantastic challenge. And that's how I got involved. It's very, it's a, uh, it's really good. It really breaks it down. And one thing that I want people to know is that um, uh, the it talks about the four 
these are, I, I mean, these are basically the four things that people in India specifically really practice. I mean, this is something, can you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say them correctly besides Hinduism and Buddhism. What's the other two? Sikhism and Jainism. Just making sure. Um, yeah, but uh, one thing I found delightful is that in any religion actually is what's so interesting is that everybody uses the queer component against us. Like we can't get involved with God or Jesus or whomever, which in fact, if you actually go back from a theological standpoint, none of that's actually ever mentioned. That doesn't even, the word homosexuality doesn't even exist. That really didn't come up for topic until 1865 or something, the word itself. Um, so I think it's always fascinating that people use it so hard. They always pick the, the passages, the passage that, the, um, that it correlates with in any writing, well, specifically the Bible. Um, but there's also like a hundred, there's so many versions of everything. It's so interesting. How long did you live in the U.S. for? So I lived in the U.S. for uh, just about seven years. About okay. and then you came. Yeah. So your yeah. parent, and then you came back to Mumbai. And then I came back to Mumbai. So Mumbai has been my my place of birth and where I lived for the. And for time. people, for people that have not visited India, obviously everybody knows India as a very populated place, but it really truly has so many gods, goddesses. Like if you go to these temples and like all these different places, it's like. It's just so much. <laughs> it's like the epi- right. <laughs> it's the epicenter of a lot of things. Of course, just a little background. It was, you know, it wasn't really. In- it was taken over by basically Western culture. This is what I call it for like 275 years. And and when did it go independent in 1947? 1940... 47. 47. Right. That's not that long ago. That's so not very long. We're in very hindsight, people are yeah, people are still suffering from that in a lot of ways and um people also take advantage of that in a lot of ways in that country which confuses me because like i always say india has a passive aggressive approach to things because <laughs> oh, indeed it's like they want to move forward together but not really like they're like <laughs> so um i just find it interesting and especially so, like the- I, I describe indians as cats you can't herd cats right just right. the same way you cannot herd Indians in one direction. And I think that's actually a strength. That's, it is that's a strength because it also keeps, it also keeps, I think, the energy in the dynamic, even though there's tons of people there um, in one place, like in the major cities anyways. Um, but there's still this like, there's like still this, this like not this major stress if like you were to go to New York City or if you go to like London or any other city, like there's not this like intense, way of right. having to get to the place on time well they don't no one ever gets anywhere on time nothing ever starts <laughs> on time. <laughs> but um and that's not even calling it like it is it's just that's what it is and everyone's okay with that so when you come over there as an american specifically it is like you have to get you have to let everything go that you think you know about what you think is going to happen over there as terms yeah. in terms of the culture yeah Yes, and, I mean, in, 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 sorry, I, I was just going to say, yeah, in India is just so many different things, right? It's so many different experiences. And so everything that you say is also true and not true about India. I mean, there are, there are places in India where you'll have people running off to get to places in a rush. And then there are places of India where, you know, it's so relaxed and so laid back. And you're just like, will you ever get up and do any work? I, like, <laughs> you come <know>? on. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, yes. And, it's, um, and I just find it interesting with the religious aspect too, because, because it was... Um, there's a big Catholic community and Christian community 
uh, and there's lots of places you could just go pray on the side of the road there. And it's like, they have these, these um, statues and they have, it's just, that's actually the beauty inside of it. That's why I'm, I love, I'm so attracted to India. It's ridiculous. And I will go back there and do all my work the rest of my life. Um, eventually when we get past all of this again. And so something you, so do you, do you just call yourself an atheist? Correct. Um, I do. I do. And I mean, I think I used to be a far more of a, uh, an atheist with a stronger conviction, let's put it that way, uh, than yeah. I am now. It happens when you're younger. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, than I am now. And I think now, um, especially after writing this book and the journey of discovery that that had put me on, has put me on a place where I think that um, religion gives you so many beautiful values. Um, and, and just four of, of those, which I think are the most beautiful, is I think a sense of meaning a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, and a sense of awe, which an atheist or a secular lifestyle just kind of sorely lacks. Like, where does somebody who does not believe in the supernatural or does not believe in gods experience a sense of awe, the sense of the sacred? Um, what is the sacred for an atheist? And where does that spiritual experience come from? And that is possible to humans. It's clearly possible because religious people go through those experiences of rapture and ecstasy and, and, and awe and sacredness. Um, but where do you experience this? How do you curate those experiences? Where do you get the experience of belonging to a community and feeling like you're part of a nice grand vision and a greater purpose than just your own life, right? And I think as an atheist, it's a very important um, journey um, to find these values of purpose and meaning and belongingness and awe um, through your network, through your community and through your world and your experiences. Um, yeah. The th well, the thing with atheism is that people are, it's funny with that because you do believe in something. You believe in not believing in something. Um, yet you do have to, you, as a human being, like you said, you really do have to like find something though that like gives you bliss and joy and like um, you can't just go being angry. All I mean, you could certainly go be angry all the time. Or even just like, why would you even live another day? Yeah, like, exactly. Why would like, you what's get the up purpose? another day and live? Exactly. exactly. What's the purpose? What's the purpose? I mean, if like, there is no God and there's no heaven and there's no reward or an afterlife or there is no sense of metaphysical journey that you're on, then why are you even prolonging this pure biological existence? For what purpose? Uh, well, exactly. And like, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in a higher being. I don't, I think because literally we're doing it all together here. Nobody's going to do it for us. We have to exist together. Do I think things are godly? Like there's nature and I absolutely, like I do believe that we are, and I keep saying this in every single talk I have, like Jesus, for example, is a, I think is a great example is just somebody who was like, listen, we got to do this together. I love everybody. And everyone hated the church, the law hated that. So they came down on that person and ended up killing them because they were afraid. Modern, it happens today. Like it's just in different forms. So we don't, we don't, we call it different things um, because people are scared of whatever. I don't know what they're scared of. But, mm. um, and what I think is great is behind you is the Last Supper <laughs> picture. Um, but I, I but I find Where value in all of that. I find value in the art and the things. And I wear a crucifix around my neck. Yeah, no, because there's such <laughs> beauty and depth in that. And historically speaking, too. And um, I know it's a lot to ask this question, but just explain a little bit each of like Hinduism, Buddhism, just like briefly. I know. <laughs> sure. 
No, I mean, uh, I mean, that's one of the things that I struggled with over the over the course of writing the book was to kind of distill the principles of these religions, right? Oh, and so, put and put and then talk about um, talk about the queer component and like what that is and like what for right. all that, right? So one of the things about uh, Indian religions or just Indian philosophy, let's put it this way, because um, it, I, I, I saw that these, these religions were really larger than just the metaphysical component of it. They were also a philosophical system of how to live your life, right? Um, so if you look at Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism, the four major philosophical strains of thought in India that influences um, the Indian subcontinent. So I don't want to call it India necessarily, but the Indian subcontinent, which then includes also, you know, regions of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nepal, and all where Buddhism kind of expanded and spread and Jainism that moved around. All of these regions were, were, um, were, were deeply immersed in the study of what I today understand as diversity. And it traces back to a, uh, a, a line in a scripture 5,000 years ago that was written. And, and the line goes as um, Vikriti Evam Prakriti. And what it means is, it says diversity is reality. And for me, I think that's such a brilliant encapsulation of a very deep metaphysical truth that reality is so diverse, so diverse that it itself is what it is and you can't reduce it. It's irreducible. Diversity of reality is irreducible. And from there springs the, the main core principle of Jainism. Jainism's core principle is nonviolence. Now, why nonviolence? Specifically, it says nonviolent because you don't know enough to know. So you don't know enough to know with certainty. So it's actually intellectual nonviolence, which is at the core of its philosophy, Jainism, and which then manifests today as, you know, vegetarianism and being completely pacifist in politics and being completely nonviolent. So that's Gandhiji, Mahatma Gandhiji comes from that region where Jainism was highly influential. And so Gandhi, uh, the founder of India, considered to be the founder of India, um, he practiced uh, nonviolence in a very specific way. But if you look at it, so it traces to this principle, diversity is, is reality, it, it is irreducible, so complex, you can't know everything. Since you cannot know everything, you can't be judgmental. Since you shouldn't be judgmental, therefore step back, have that intellectual humility, do not, um, uh, do not inflict violence intellectual or physical on another because violence implies your certainty and the superiority of your position and your vantage point. Likewise with Buddhism. Now look at Buddhism. Buddhism's core principle is, is essentially liberation from the world of illusion. So again, what they're saying is that the world is so diverse and so complex and there is so much happening. You don't know what the truth is. And perhaps there is no truth. Perhaps it's all a massive illusion of complexity that you think you are this presenting this body. You think this is you who you now from a queer perspective, you think you're heterosexual. You think everyone is heterosexual. You think you are male and you think all males should be the way you are, but that's not the truth. And that's just not enough. And it's just an illusion. And so let's shatter that illusion of the body and of how you present yourself into the world and what gender you perform on in, in, in the world. So in fact, in Buddhist scriptures, it is actually mentioned that gender is a performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, and these are predating our gender studies classrooms by millennia. I know. Right? Yeah. You yeah. have 
you have Jain monks and Buddhist monks writing in the scriptures about the psychological gender, the physical gender, the performative gender. Mm -hmm. And all of this is an analysis of reality. And then you have Hinduism and Hinduism's core principle is the respect and celebration of diversity. So if you look at how you contrast Buddhism and Hinduism, Buddhism and Hinduism have, have always been sort of at contrasting loggerheads with each other. So while Buddhism looked at diversity and said, that's too complex, it's probably not true, it's an illusion, escape. Let's withdraw from it. Hinduism said, wow, diversity, awesome. Let's immerse ourselves, let's celebrate, let's get into it, let's perform, let's, let's put the colors on and let's put the music on and let's dance and let's put the jewelry. And so Hinduism went into the celebration of diversity, which is why if you look at Hindu temples, it's full of beautiful sculptures and life and so sound. Mm -hmm. Exactly. As soon as you enter a Hindu temple, you ring a bell. So immediately your, your senses are, are attuned, you know, your auditory senses and you, then you're performing um, rituals where all kinds of uh, smells and, and oils are, uh, fragrances are introduced and you have to perform so many rituals. So Hinduism is a celebration of everything that's diverse. So, so Hinduism is celebration of diversity. Buddhism is liberation from the illusion of reality, which it considers to be so complex. Jainism is that everything is so diverse and so complex, step back and not be violent and judgmental because your perspective is probably not the most certain one. So it's non-violent, it's skeptical. And then finally you have Sikhism. Sikhism says diversity is so real, everything is so diverse, there is no way for you to establish superiority. And so therefore everyone is equal. So Sikhism's uh, fundamental principle is equality. Everyone is equal in their own way. Everyone comes with different talents. So you may come with something better at something and I may come with something better else, else that's better at something. But when we get together and when we live as a human co a community, we are all equal and we all therefore have to be treated with respect and equality. So all of them are looking at the world in, from different angles. Mm -hmm. So if you want a philosophy of equality, you have Sikhism. If you want to have a philosophy of diversity, you have Hinduism. If you want to have a philo philosophy of liberty, you have Buddhism. And if you have a want a philosophy of uh, you know uh, nonviolence, you're um, Jainism. So it's fantastic to see all of these philosophical strains moving about in the Indian subcontinent for five thousand years and continue to be because these religions continue to live um, with with a sizable number of practitioners in the country and continuing to in influence the way we act and the way we behave. Um, the scary part, however, in India is that a lot of this diversity is getting lost. Mm. Um, and there is a concerted movement in India, both politically and religiously speaking, to collapse and reduce all of this complexity and diversity into a very uh, single strain or a monolithic way of, uh, of expressing these ideas and religions. And I, that is where you get the more toxic forms of... Yes. Uh, well, yeah. yeah, that's where it becomes dangerous a little bit, too, because people in power tend to... Well, it's happening here. I mean, if you've been following the news, it's exactly what's happening here, not in terms of religion. I mean, there is a big religious component to it because of the way people use Christianity and Catholicism over here. Um, but specifically, like, uh, uh, with that in India, it's like, it's yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, I follow as much as I can. I try not to, I try to follow everyone I talk to around the world. I try to follow at least something that's going on there because there's so much going on here right now. Right. Um, so I just, uh, it does get a little, uh, 
not dangerous, but it feels like it's, you can't be yourself. And that's where the queer component for me, it's like, yes, they completely dismantled um, the law. And so, yes, you can be gay, but it's just, where does it really lie? Like, where does it come into the conversation? Like, how do you now move forward? Um, because when we go, when, when we, we go over there with our work, it's so interesting. Everyone thinks for Hydra. <laughs> like, nope, I am a gay man and I like men and I'm, but I'm male. Like I'm a cis male. Like I, I, I do not want to be, but it's because it's been so engrossed in the culture there that like the assumptions are real. Like they just assume. And then it's like, no, that's not how it works. So to be, so how do you feel that conversation is moving forward in, in these past few years, actually, um, in the city and also like out of the city? Because it's obviously anytime you go out of a city anywhere in the world, it gets a little bit comp- more complicated because it's the country, it's the, all the different. It's not not a lot is talked about versus the city. So what? Do you, how do you feel like it's changing, transforming? I guess in the, Mumbai versus and versus like the suburb. Um, you know, I, I would say that it's transforming in some good ways and in some not so nice good ways. Um, and the good ways are, is obviously, as you said, the, you know, the law um, has been repealed that criminalized homosexuality in particular. Um, and so that, therefore, that has kind of translated into a, a more open and free life for those in cities and urban areas and for the privileged um, LGBTQ members of the community. And as you said very correctly, the, the lives that are out of, out of the city areas and out of urban areas in the countryside and in rural areas are, are a lot more complicated and, and, and in many ways still the same um, from before, uh, you know, when 377, the law was not repealed. Um, and and what, by that, what I also mean in the, in the not so good ways is that um, when we had the law in the books, there was a sense in which we all felt that we were part of a community that was oppressed. And th- then this is a phenomenon that's globally across the world we've noticed, right? Any repressed community or any marginalized community have a stronger sense of bonding and, and, and belongingness when actually the structures of oppression exist. The moment the structures of op- oppression are removed, at least legally and politically speaking, um, the, the fruits of that benefit really just percolate largely to the ones who are privileged in society. Because the social oppression or the, or, or the kind of interpersonal oppression continues to remain. The prejudice yeah. and the bias and the bigotry does not go away just because the law has no longer, is no longer on the books. Right? Right. Um, you don't make a person non-racist just because the law has changed. Right. You don't make a person non-bigot just because the law has changed. Mm-hmm. And so that has continued to be. And the greatest victims of that kind of prejudice are those who don't have the privilege to fight against it. So, for example, someone like me, I would consider myself a, a man of great privilege, um, affluent enough, educated, English speaking, able to navigate um, in India in, in many ways and, and its many systems in, in a very um, advantaged uh, space, even though I come from many minor, minorities. And, I said, and I says, as I said earlier, that I'm not a professional activist in the sense um, I have not dedicated my career to activism of this cause. I've, I'm not part of an NGO. Um, and yet I, I was able to speak out openly and be safe in India, even when it was illegal. Yet I was able to access television channels and, and, and newspaper columns and be out and be gay and be open about my lifestyle. Because I knew that, that I had resources and I had means to fight. 
and that and that i could articulate my oppression and i could articulate my victimhood in in, in powerful ways and in powerful channels and platforms um and so now that the law has gone i'm the first one to get the benefit out of it right because now there is no longer a, a legal threat over me um but somebody who is a gay person or a queer person out in the out in the rural areas or out who does not speak in english or can't navigate these systems so much more confidently as i can maybe due to lack of financial resources or lack of education or so deeply entrenched in other intersectional uh, oppressions like caste right um they still continue to have a very difficult life and the problem is we no longer have that strong sense of community that we used to have um that community and belongingness has loosened considerably mm. um i i feel because now we're like okay well the battle is won we've got the we've got freedom now what else oh now those the gays who want to get married they can go and fight their own case on their own or oh, now that the now the lesbians who want to you know get extra rights or uh, insurance or medical insurance they can go fight their case on their own there is no no uh, rallying cause anymore like we used to have and i think that's the negative part I that's do feel that sense of community and belongingness has loosened. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. I you'd think it'd come even more than because it's now you have a sense of you feel have a sense of safety, but since it's not um no because see earlier you're... earlier a queer person from say a rural area faced the same illegal dangers and threats that I would have felt uh, faced uh, from, you know the illegal dangers and threats because of that law. and so that bound us together on a certain mission and so yeah. we knew that we had to stick together and we would connect with each other maybe on facebook or on internet communities or through our virtual meetings or maybe through our uh, um, real group meetings and that brought us together now i i do sense that there has been a loosening of that bond because i'm i'm liberated someone right. like me is far more free than than a person in in a, a different environment yeah i got that Yeah, I hear that. I I get that. Yeah. It's interesting too because now um yeah, that's an interesting and this just is, and because of the caste system in India, it's like so apparent like prejudice and and um racism is very strong. Okay. Uh, and because just because you're gay but you're still from a different caste system. That's what people I actually saw a great film while I was there a couple years ago, a short film, and that was literally that topic. It was the mom, the son came up to the mom she didn't care about that but then he was from a different caste system and she cared about that and that's that's the real topic that's i to me i think is that's the real conversation you need to have um and that even goes inside of religious beliefs and stuff like that too and and where do you um where do you balance that cuz it's so separate there it's like so apparent i wish more people could see it um I personally don't care but I'm not from there and I don't think you care but like there are a lot of people that care about that. Oh, even yes, even when you come over to America and uh if you come to America as an Indian you actually there's horrific Huge. stories about that. Oh, they bring, like still they bring their prejudice with them. Yeah, course. it's like never yes, goes yes. away and um and I, but I don't think it gets talked about enough and so like to 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 a lot of people anyways. Um but I but you know I why I'm so like why I love the book first of all is because it breaks it down so beautifully you guys did such a good job just um making it very clear and understanding for myself and probably for a lot of other readers um because I did I do think religion is such an important factor in everyone's lives even if you don't go somewhere someone you know go somewhere um and because you have a lot of different options in India 
there's it's just a funky way to navigate like how people view you true like that's that's exactly how i thought about it as well i was like even though i may not be religious i know that my parents are yeah. um and and i know that many of my friends and their loved ones are religious and so if i had to speak to them and connect with them on an emotional level i needed to be able to speak their vocabulary i needed to be able to understand the frameworks of thought that they use exactly. um so so whenever you are talking to somebody about issues that are of greater uh, you know deep significance to each other either politics or religion or anything i think it is important for you to take the other person's framework of references and use that in the way in which you communicate and only then that's that's the way you'll able to bridge the gap between two different i think it's the only way i mean it's truly the only way and i don't think people do it enough i don't just go at it from a um from an educational standpoint just look at that you don't know what you don't know so like just find out why they're so stuck on one or two things here in the states it's usually you can't be gay you can't get an abortion and um and you have to abide by the church's law like you have to listen to the the pastor or the priest or like you have to like listen to them and in a way it sounds like a cult <laughs> but <laughs> but it does like it's very cultish sounding yeah. um and there's extremist groups involved in all of that too there's just so many layers so uh but you even have to find out why they're coming from that perspective now some people just seem crazy um and have lost it somewhere down the line but my big thing is why like why is it so far gone for them like our attack on the capital right why are those right. people so far gone <laughs> they thought they could get away with attacking the capital they're not going to get away with it but like now there's even more stories coming up about it and like more like people going on trial and then they're just kind of being pardoned right now and then hopefully they get back so it's just right, right. i mean racism here and all that stuff but So I think it's so just give people a little perspective of like how you do navigate um uh being open like with your sexuality and like your workplace and all that kind of stuff and like how does that actually come to play for you and then how do you think it comes to play for other people Uh so for me personally I think it um all happened because and I I would credit a lot a lot um to my upbringing years in the united states you know for having studied in the us and having grown up uh, in my most formative years in the us and and kind of realizing that there is a way in which to live that you can be out and open um when i lived in chicago for some time i i saw the gay community in chicago being so out and open and that there was a lifestyle where people celebrated it i was i was amazed that the city of chicago had an official designation for a community uh, for for the lgbt community in boys town or on a boys town street yeah. yeah and i was just like wow that's like an a validation by mainstream society that you know we celebrate your life and we celebrate your businesses and we celebrate your existence even so um when i came to india when i had to come to india due to um, personal reasons i realized that i cannot go back to the closet and i cannot live again in the dark and i knew what that meant i knew that that meant a lot of risk um both at the workplace and in my personal life but then i was just like there is no other way to live and i realized that i can't live in any other way so i i knew that i would always be out even when i came back to india so at every job interview that i went to i was very open and frank about the fact that this is my sexuality not that i would bring it out on the table um unsolicited and unasked but if it came up in conversation um you know for example if it came up that who do you live with because in india the interviews are fairly personal 
So it's legal in India in, in, in job interviews in India to ask you about your family and about your life and all of that. It's legal. It's so um, I, I as far back as I can remember, I always remember being out and open at the workplace. And I also had this one incident where my boss once came to me and said that, you know, you know, there's a bunch of people over there talking about the fact that you're gay. And I said, well, yeah, that's true. And if they spoke, asked me directly in person, that's exactly what I would say. Tell them to, I would say, I would tell them to the face that I'm gay. So what's the big deal? So I never backed off. I never backtracked. Um, and I think that sense of confidence and that sense of front footing uh, put a lot of other people on the back foot and put a lot of other people on their guard and kind of said that there's something off here that he's gay, but he's absolutely not ashamed of it, um, so, which is not the way they were accustomed to encountering uh, gay people in their right. lives, right? Exactly. So always the coming out experience was of somebody opening up with a lot of shame and with, with a lot of guilt and with a lot of uh, suffering and pain, opening up and saying, by the way, I want to admit to you that I am gay. But here was this one individual that, that they encountered who was so openly, um, um, confidently uh, open about his life and his sexuality, but not in a very stereotypical sense in which they would have perceived me, right? Because like, as you said, when you came to India, a lot of people just thought that you were Hijra um, or that, you know, that's the community you belong to. And so I didn't fit the, the template or the narrative that they kind of traditionally um, were fed about what LGBTQ meant or how queer people are supposed to present themselves. In my personal life, I had a major, um, I, I continue to have lots of struggles with my family, with my mom and dad, especially my mom, who's very, very religious, very Catholic. And so, as I said to you earlier, I had to understand and learn the vocabulary of religion and her religion in particular to, to be able to communicate to her. So I do remember I once, uh, I mean, she's, she's brought priests over, she's had holy water thrown on me, and she's had a mass uh, dedicated for me, and all kinds of things have happened, and clearly nothing wow. has changed. And I'm, I'm still as gay and as <laughs> fabulous as I ever was. Of course, of course. Um, so, but I do remember once having a very lengthy and extended conversation with her, where I said, listen, mom, um, if Jesus were alive today, you would have uh, really condemned his behavior. He loved hanging out with prostitutes. He loved hanging out with taxpayers. People in, the, in society who did not like, who, who most people did not like, he went to them. When, that, when, he, when he talks about the parable of the hundred sheep, he goes to hunt that one lost sheep. He leaves behind the, the other 99. So he would have left you behind. He would have come chasing me if you think that I'm the lost sheep. Jesus comes to me. That's it. He wouldn't care about you. I know. Um, so, so, you know, I had to use the vocabulary and the frameworks that she was aware of. And, and so mm. she's, her stance has softened quite a bit. Um, but it is still a topic that we cannot talk about much. And, uh, and so we still have that rift between us. And, and it's unfortunate as a result of it for her, her. She has sacrificed her relationship with her son and the love that she could have had as a parent for her child. She has sacrificed that for the fact that she has a religion that she wants to stick on to. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's very real. That's a very real everywhere around the world. That's a very yeah. real thing. Like they will just like, like I said, it's a cult mentality. That's what it is. That's a definition. Like you, not that I'm saying that's a cult, but it's just to, to go so far into something and not want to have a sincere and honest relationship with the person that you brought into this world is mind boggling to me. I will continue the work I do because of that. I don't, I don't, I mean, I know there are people that kill themselves because their parents do not love them. Um, so, and very young too, you know, and it's like, I, I can't, I can't stand with that. So it's an interesting, but 
you have a conversation and like luckily you can have a conversation your mom's willing to listen at least and um but can you bring a boyfriend over oh yes i have yeah uh, yeah, yeah that's mean, what i thought i'm like you're very I'm like i know i know enough about you uh, yeah that no yeah. i mean i i do i can bring a boyfriend over only because i i choose to impose that life over yeah. them because I'm, I'm like if you invite me and if you're inviting me over to your house and you invite me as a gay person as well and then as a gay person i am now in a relationship and so this person comes along with me so you invite the whole me wherever you wherever i go if i'm invited you invite the whole me yeah do you have any siblings i do i have an older sister How who she? is uh, f- yeah fairly accepting of me um, she and i we are not very close again due to uh, childhood issues and and how i mean growing growing up queer in a very conservative household you really separate yourself emotionally from mm-hmm. from sure. everyone unless they unless they make the effort to reach out to you and really open yourself up to you because you're so vulnerable you're growing up with so much shame and especially if you're growing up in a in a philosophical system that says that this is such a huge sin and there was and there's so much of moralism around being gay unlike you know unlike the other religions that i was talking to you about hinduism and and the other various religions it yeah. all depends on how these ideas um are expressed in your household so in my household sex as such was such a big issue moral issue that homosexuality was at the radical far extreme end of it and um, as a result i didn't really build any strong relationships with my family members including my siblings you seem sound like you keep them at least at bay and you're like they're there i can there. go home some people yes. can't and so like at least you can go and and go to a function or um or a wedding or whatever like you can yes, still do much. those things so um very that's much. that's nice the interesting part about the sex part is what i find fascinating especially in india if you go way back i'm like you're all the ones that created tantra uh you tantra and all that kind of stuff like it came kama sutra and kama all, sutra, that. all that stuff like that's such a nice and i know when it started to get crushed down historically like i get why it started to but interesting enough it's a very um sensual and and, and seductive life like way of being like i very much so so i thought when i went uh, i went to a uh, i don't know what it is like now but like you guys just have like pop up like for the pride uh the, the in mumbai when they have the parade that night they have like a big big party dance and it's so interesting to it was so interesting to me to see in america there's clubs everywhere right uh but when you put people together that don't necessarily have this is before the law got knocked down when they don't have the outlet but the, but they have a night for the outlet oh my god it's like <laughs> it's like yes. you like opened up this like portal to another dimension they were losing their minds and like yeah. it was so crowded it was sweaty and everybody was just like if they could have taken off their clothes and just had sex right there they would have like that's I'm sure how they did too <laughs> i'm sure that's how intense it is and they get really and and oh and you know in india everyone gets as much closer in terms of touching anyways and everyone yes. gets they don't have problems they have spatial issues <laughs> that's what i like but to we, say well, we are so many of us you can't afford to have spatial issues exactly <laughs> so when you put it all in like one space in a club oh my right. god it was right. crazy right but i appreciated it too because i forgot actually what it's like to experience because when when i was 18 i came in when i was 16 but like when i got to go to a club finally at 18 um that's what it was like for me because it was like oh my gosh all my people in one spot 
Um, so when it's so far and few there in India, it's so it was so fascinating to experience like just everybody was like, get me here. And so I appreciated it. And, and it's, I mean, it's along this journey of evolution of the culture, right? So um, as, as I said earlier, the, 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 the queer liberation movement is so nascent and it's so new that any of these outlets and any of these spaces, people flock to it and it is seen as the most precious space for us to come out, right? Sure. Um, and, and as more and more of these spaces become common space and as more and more legal threats and political systems move out and you know, the, 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 the queer liberation becomes more open and out in the mainstream, you will, you will notice that, that these spaces become far more sparse and it becomes a lot less valued, I think. So for example, today, I would probably no longer need to go to a gay club for a night for, to party because I'm just like, well, I mean, now it's all out in the open. I can meet my friends anywhere and we can be gay openly and there can be no threat of any uh, cops bothering us or any restaurant right. guy throwing us out before because, because we're gay or whatever. I mean, no blackmail, no issue. So that's the thing, right? So it's now we can be anywhere. As that's what some that people forget that the cops... That's what people don't know a lot of, like in India specifically, the cops do that. <laughs> well, I don't know if they don't do that anymore because you like, I have a law at least to protect me. Um, but they do, they blackmail you or they do all these different things. Right. And, um, uh, a lot of entrapment used to be very common. Well, it's Cop basically yeah. 1968 in America versus 2020 uh, when, when it was, that's the different, that's what right. I compare it to. It's like what people did in the sixties here in America and the cops doing that here is what they Correct. do, what did over right. there in India. So like, right. it, but like in 2015, you know, or 16 or whatever. So Correct. up until when I, so it's an interesting, the depth, the distance is so that the, the way you're catching up is just like, and you yes. know, in India takes time anyways, it doesn't matter. I mean, we are a young democracy. And think, <laughs> things, exactly. yeah, take your time. Yeah, you yeah, take yeah. your time. And, we'll get there. <laughs> you get there. And then, and, um, and that's why I liked about, I mean, now when I go there, because I go out to the Avengers, the palace, out to the boot, like the middle of nowhere. That pal It's in the middle of nowhere, it seems, but it's beautiful. But then going back to Mumbai. So we do the balance of balancing act just to get both experiences always and, mm -hmm. and to do the work. And, um, but we bring our workshops to smaller towns and like we, and, and people come and because there's always someone that wants to go no matter what. Right. Right. And that's what. That's actually what I always tell people. I'm like, no matter where you are in the world, if you hold a queer function, someone will show up because okay. there's not enough of it. And, 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 and even if no one shows up, just the fact that if they get to know that there, that there was a queer function that happened. That exactly. Didn't. Because I know that, it, that as a closeted queer person, that can come, come to you as, a, as, as air, as fresh air, mm -hmm. as, as a, literally a lifesaver, just to even know that, yeah. wow, you know, that somebody's doing this in the open and that I know that if I could have been there, I would have been safe there and I would, I would have enjoyed that. Representation matters no matter where exactly. you are in the world. Exactly. And I think that's, I think it's a responsibility for many of us who are out and out uh -huh. and open and visible and have the privilege to be, to, to be completely vocal about it and to be um, out and open about it. And that's how the way I saw my role as well. As, oh, as I love it. I, yeah. well, I, when I met you, I was like, who is this person? Because I was like, I was still learning about India. I was, and I was getting attracted to the idea of different things, the way it goes and like being very respectful and trying to understand and listen. 
I happened to be with Mavender and Duke. So we did all gay things anyways. And that's why we were there. So for me, it wasn't, there was no disconnect in that. But then I started having conversations and I met you and I, you know, all the different people that I've met. Um, then I started to dig in a little deeper because it's, it's, cause not only it affects you, it affects the whole world. Like the way an example is shown on the news to the whole world, like the way gay marriage was all passed through all of America. That's a huge example to the entire world. Definitely. Like, cause if they're like, oh, well they're doing it. We should probably get on board. But we're also behind when it comes to certain queer leaders. We don't have enough. Now we have a lot of queer leaders more and more in the Senate and the Congress. And, um, but we're even behind when it comes to some other countries, come some other countries that have been doing it for years. So right. um, just keep showing, keep showing shining examples of like what that means. Indeed. What, um, so, okay. This was a nice conversation. I just like my guests to uh, give some words of wisdom to my queer listeners, my queer youth listeners. So what's oh. something you would say? I know I always catch everybody off guard. What's something you would say or pass along? Um, I don't say advice. I just say wisdom or words of, of encouragement. What would you say? Um, you know, I think I, I, would, uh, I would just go back to some of the themes that I covered in the book. And I would say that everyone's journey is diverse and that there is no one way to anything, to whether it is liberation or whether it is queer emancipation or, or, or winning rights. So for example, I found that the, that the discourse and vocabulary of rights in India was very different from the Western discourse. In the West, typically, or at least in the US and at least in Europe, the discourse is very adversarial with regards to religion in particular. Um, you know, LGBTQ rights is always a secular domain. It's always considered to be, you know, not religious. Don't bring religion into the picture. Use the constitution. But I realized in India that you don't need to appeal to the constitution and you probably wouldn't get too far by appealing to the constitution. You have to make the discourse palatable to the Indian psyche, to our culture, to our, to our philosophies. And so what I learned in the process is there are many various different ways to approach a single problem. Um, and so I think respecting diversity, again, I go back to that, respecting the diversity of cultures and experiences and lives and learning to live with it. It's a very difficult task. It's very inconvenient. So one of my TED Talks is actually saying, uh, is, is actually titled Dealing with the Inconvenient Other, because we always think of the other as inconvenient, especially if they don't agree with us. Right. Um, and especially if they don't share our ideas. And so, but life um, is beautiful when you're able to negotiate and calibrate these diversities um, and celebrate it. Um, and, and I think the toxic form of it is, uh, is when you try and entrench your sense of uh, difference as the superior, as the only, um, rather than understanding that your difference is just different, not better. And I think that's, that's the lesson to take away, that diversity just means differences and therefore there can be somebody else who are who's, who's, who's in, in many ways ahead of you in life, in many ways more privileged or in many ways more marginalized. And you have to figure out how to navigate all of these places and realize that everybody's in different journeys and in different um, um, journeys on, along this life and create meaningful experiences for each other. So yeah. 100%, I agree with that. Like you have to, you have to hear it all. Cause like I said, you don't know what you don't know and you have to respect Yes, there are a lot of mean and stupid people <laughs> and you yes, just yes, get definitely. so aggravated by them. And you're like, you have to be kidding me right now. You have no, also, to... and you have to pick your battles, right? I mean, you yeah. don't have to always win, win the, no, win the, no. wall, the, you know, the world, right? Let you're that not go. Like, yeah, yeah. You exactly. have to let it, let it go and like, just, okay. 
just I find think... the people that find the people that you are interested in like and that's the thing about these online internet wars and battles that happen on social media and so it's like who are you trying to change and what are you trying to do find your friends find your family members and if members in your circle are uh, having opinions that differ to you and that matter to you they matter to you so have a conversation with them mm-hmm. they are the ones you should be speaking to not some random faceless people on social media that you're fighting against i mean you're just wasting your energies yeah so, um, Totally. That's the way I look at it. I mean, I, I think about I think about changing the world with the people around you at your workplace, your friend circle, your network. That's it. Um, impact them because yeah. it's a ripple effect. Because if you're gonna like for people at your work, like you were saying, like, oh, he's so open. I don't, I'm confused, but you don't even know like the impact that has yet. Because exactly. like it's like, oh, well, that's just a person being a person and true, being their true selves. And most people don't. I mean, the way why people come up against a lot of people in life is because you are being your true self. So people are really confused and they're angry at that because they necessarily aren't being their authentic selves and trying to, and like, you're so comfortable with who you are. They're like, well, go away. I don't really yeah. appreciate it. Yes. But that's a funny thing that like people are afraid of you being yourself. Yes. Um, where can people find you? Um, well... I'm not very active on Twitter, but I am at Jerry's tweet. And then I'm on Instagram, but Instagram is very personal and it has to do with my- It is, I see all your pictures. Narcissistic, narcissistic gay life. <laughs> hey, I appreciate it. So you can be narcissistic all you want. Um, so I am on Instagram as well. Um, not easy to find me because I use a pseudonym there. Um, what about like out. the, what about the book though? Like the, where, where can they like find that and stuff? Right, well, the book is called I Am Divine, So Are You. And you can find that on Amazon. It's available on Amazon and ships worldwide. And also it's published by HarperCollins. So you'll, you'll find it in major bookstores as well. Thank you so much, Jerry, for your time. I really value it. I'm so glad Jerry and I met in India. Um, and we have remained um, social and friends ever since then. And it's so important to remind you over and over my QT listeners, that having a belief in God or whatever you want to believe in is so important to have, uh, to be happy and to be your true self with. You can be queer and do whatever you want and love whoever you want. That's it. Of course, I want to thank my on-air sponsor, Michael J. Grabowskis. And if you're interested, please, 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 um, if you want to give a little money, like $5 a month goes a long way for Quarantine Podcasts. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Quarantine Podcast. And I'm your host, Anthony Giorgio. And thanks for listening to another episode of QT, Quarantine Podcast. Encouraging the next generation of queer youth from across the world to stand up for what's right. And remember, listen, learn, love. <laughs>